bulletin board. Um, I'm going to call attention to a couple things. Wednesday, uh, season of Lent begins, and so we begin at our church. We do celebrate the season of Lent um, with a contemplative service here this coming Wednesday at 6 p.m. It's a 30-minute service. Um, we will we will have ashes, and uh, we will reflect a little bit as we begin this season. During the season of Lent, we're going to be discussing sin. The name of the series is um, <clears throat> Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And we're going to, to think through what is sin, why is it important to discuss it, uh, and why does God mention it? What's it there for? Why are, we, why are we even concerned about it? So this Wednesday begins that season of Lent. So let me invite you to come. And uh, if you've not been to Bill, Spe- uh, Bill Spears' class, <clears throat> he's talking about the 10 most understood verses in the Bible. And I understand today is Mark 16 and handling of snakes. And Bill, are we going to end up handling snakes when we're all done with this? Just want to know. I'm not a snake, snake fan, so I'm going to let Mark handle it if we are. <laughs> So if you're interested in some of these very controversial verses, uh, afterwards, right across the hall in the commons, uh, join him over there. We did start our basic theology class this past Wednesday, and it's every Wednesday for uh, five weeks, and we'll take a break and then do five more weeks, and we're talking about what do we believe as a church? What are our core beliefs? <clears throat> and um, you could come to any of the classes. It's not that you have to be there from all of them. So if you're only here and you want to stop in on one that interests you, come on in and uh, sit in and listen as we talk through what are our beliefs. Down at the bottom, you see the Benz family. We're congratulating their baby. Also, Alex Headley and Kathleen Haddix, don't know if you know them, they're new to our church. Uh, she had her baby this week as well, so I spent some time in the hospital with them. And So we have, uh, God continues to grow our church. We just added two people. So, <laughs> all right, let's... Um, Let's stop and go to the Lord and lift up some of our, uh, some of our needs as we do every week. Father, we, uh, we do pause and we pay homage to you, the one true God, uh, Lord of the universe. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are God and we are not. And we delight in worshiping you. Uh, we are grateful. Father, we have so many needs. Uh, we're only going to mention a few, but you know the rest of them. Father, thank you again for Don Wolf's surgery, the good news, and we look forward to having him back with us really soon. Pray that he would continue to heal him and that this would take care of all the cancer issues. And Lord, we lift up Julia White, uh, still in the hospital as she's working to heal. Lord, um, uh, it's an awful big burden for someone so young, and I pray that you continue to show her your grace and help her to heal through this time. Uh, Father, I pray for, we've had several that have lost loved ones here recently, Uh, some we know about and some we don't. I pray for those, Lord. The grieving process is hard for us because we're not made to lose friends and loved ones. So I pray for the ones in our church that are going through the grieving process, that you would be merciful to them and uh, gracious and show them your face. And Father, for the other people in our church that are uh, sick, Lord, the ones that we don't know about, I pray that you would bless them as well. Father, be ever mindful of, of them and take care of them. Father, we do lift up our president and our government and our mayors and our governors and all the people that are making decisions on our behalf. Pray, God, that you would give them wisdom to know how to lead us well. Help us now, Lord, in our country as we are struggling with division and 
just seems to be a lot of hostility and animosity. Help us to help us to come together someplace to find unity where we can experience peace. You've told us to pray for peace, and that's what we're praying for. We ask that you would be kind to us. In your son's name, we ask all these things, Jesus. Amen. Okay, this is the last week in the series on Micah, and we're talking about societal traps. And uh, we're looking specifically at some of the traps that we find in society that kind of drive our behavior, and we're looking at Micah as a template for how to address those. The great thing about dealing with a prophet is that when we look into a prophet, we get to talk about politics. I love that. The one thing we're not supposed to talk about. Yes, we are. And Micah jumps right into the middle of the politics and the political scene. And so um, last week, if you were here, we looked at Judah's key failures. Number one, they had rejected God for idols and arrogance. They had rejected God and moved away. And as a result of that, they began to abuse the poor, the disenfranchised. What we talked about when we use the language of social justice. And you've heard me say more than once that one of the indicators that a people group are moving away from faith is when they begin to abuse people that are worse off than they are. Every prophet deals with this, every single one. So it doesn't matter which one we picked on, we would jump into their story and we'd find a little different nuance for how to look at our own cultural situation today. Today we're going to take a brief look at dishonesty and violence and what happens when they continue to grow. But let me just give you a summary. I talked more about it last week, but for those of you that weren't here, just a historical background for where Micah fits in. In the 8th century, the northern kingdom, known as Israel, was destroyed and the people deported around the world. The southern kingdom, remember the, north, the kingdom of, nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms when Solomon died, and uh, the ten northern tribes rebelled and left. They had had enough of um, the oppressive practices brought in under Solomon's reign. And the poor were getting poor and not being taken care of. And they were carrying an extra burden of share, their share of the taxes. And so they just had enough and they rebelled and moved away. Well, they never really came back to the Lord. And so in the 8th century, the northern kingdom ceased to exist. And God kept warning them and warning them. And uh, they didn't listen. The southern kingdom, Judah, had the two tribes. The eighth, for them, the 8th century began with prosperity and stability under King Uzziah. However, the same economic and social evils that were present in the northern kingdom were also present in the southern kingdom. Solomon did not take care of business. He didn't. By the end of his reign, he had allowed the nation to uh, see this corruption begin to grow, and people don't like that, and they get offended by that. So um, Micah prophesied under King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And under those three kings, all three good kings, the corruption and the oppression continued to grow underneath the surface. And people became more and more disenfranchised and more unhappy with things. In fact, we said last week one of the principles we learned is that uh, the kings didn't really make a difference. It, It really was a spiritual issue. And it is that today. And underneath these kings, the people were turning more and more to idol worship and away from God, and their hearts drifted further away. And all three of these kings did good things and brought in reforms to try to bring people back to the Lord, and it didn't work. So the people began to think that Jerusalem and its temple were indestructible. God would never allow them to be destroyed. That was his house. They were wrong, but they believed it. And in Micah, they're actually experiencing a time where they're, uh, they're besieged by the Assyrian army. We're going to see that today. 
So God sent Isaiah and Micah to the southern kingdom to address their growing rebellion against him and the resulting social injustices. So let's look in Micah. We're going to move quickly through a couple of chapters because I want you to... It gives us some insight into the way people think and how God addresses these social evils, if you will. We're going to start right in verse 1, chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now, all the way through chapter 5 and 6, you have all of this prophetic and poetic language, which is somewhat strange to our ears. We're not used to thinking the way they are communicating, so we have to kind of make sense of it. So Micah, the first thing that he reveals is that Jerusalem is besieged, probably by Sennacherib, one of the rulers of the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom, and now they're coming south, and they, they see more wealth to be gained. Remember that the primary primary foreign policy at this time of the world was you have what I want, I'm bigger than you, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take your women, I'm going to take your children, I'm going to take your gold, your crops, your animals, I'm going to take everything you have because I can't, and my God's stronger than your God, that's how I know is because I'm more powerful than you. And so that was the standard approach uh, in world foreign policy. I want what you have, and I'm going to take it. They had not conceived of the idea that came much, much later, really around the founding of our own country, that people can uh, create their own wealth. They really had the worldview that I'm going to accumulate wealth by taking your wealth. So now the city of Jerusalem is besieged probably by uh, Sennacherib. So the Israelites, as they had rejected uh, Micah's message, we can see here that he's beginning to talk to the remnant. Because he made clear in the chapters before this, they weren't listening. They weren't listening. He's talking to the people. Remember, he's living right here with them in this instant, in this time. And the Assyrians have gotten closer and closer and closer. Now they're around Jerusalem. And they're not listening. So from here on out, he's beginning to talk to the remnant. Uh, This was common among the prophets, by the way. He's encouraging them to galvanize themselves as troops. And Micah himself was with them living this humiliation and this affliction. You may remember um, very similar to this, but a little bit later, is uh, Jeremiah's Lamentations. When you read Lamentations, it's filled with the most, uh, the most uh, graphic pictures of the final days of Jerusalem. Um, they, there's, they have dead bodies laying around. Uh, Jerusalem was made of limestone, so when, when Nebuchadnezzar would shoot the firebombs over the walls and hit the limestone, it would explode like shrapnel and kill people. Uh, the mothers are killing their children and eating them. Those are the pictures throughout the book of Lamentations. It's in the final days before the city fell, and Jer- Jeremiah is there with them. And right in the middle of that, we have that famous verse, The Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. So if you, a careful reading of these prophets, you see the prophets always had a message for the people that were sinning terribly and the wicked, the evil. Then he has a message for the remnant. So Micah is giving them some clues about what's going to happen and what is happening. First thing he says is he refers to the ruler. There's a siege laid against us and they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Um, Micah's reference to the ruler rather than the king is probably a reminder that the true king is God. We should not place too much hope in King Hezekiah. 
really what he's saying. He will strike his cheek. Uh, this is Sennacherib will come and strike the cheek, the cheek of their ruler. This is the ultimate insult. Striking him on the cheek shows that he can no longer protect, him, protect himself. All resistance is gone. So Micah's saying with this, um, this is not going to be a fun time. Get ready. Get ready for it. And this kind of reminds us in 2 Kings of Sennacherib's taunt. I'm going to turn back to 2 Kings, and uh, it's a passage that you might have read before, 2 Kings chapter 19, where he's actually giving us the story of Sennacherib. And uh, Sennacherib sends one of his leaders. Um, let's see, where do I want to jump in here? 2 Kings chapter 18. Verse 17, the king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So these might be simultaneous events here. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king, and Eliakim, son of Hekiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to meet them. So this is what they said to them. Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might of war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know that you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff. I love that. Which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord, our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah already removed? Verse 23. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses. Now listen to the taunting. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can even put riders on them. There's not much left of your army. It's gone. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, I have come to attack and destroy this place without word. Oh, no, have I come to destroy without word from the Lord? You see, the Lord himself told me to march against his country and destroy it. So they're taking, they're claiming that God, Israel's God, was on their side and told them and that may have happened because God prophesied that this would happen. So they're taunting. We have example of Sennacherib doing this to Hezekiah. And so when Micah is writing these words, he's trying to address the remnant and say, just relax. Watch what's going to happen. Micah transitions immediately to one of the most famous prophetic verses in the Bible, and you all know it from, Ad, from Advent during the Christmas season. But you, Bethlehem, I'm back in Micah 5 two. though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. You've heard that verse many times during the Christmas season. Micah's quote, this verse is quoted in Matthew 2, when, the, when Herod is trying, uh, the Magi come, and they're trying to discern where the Messiah was to be born. And they come and they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Which Herod didn't like for one bit, because he's the king of the Jews. 
And so he consults the chief priests, uh, and they quote this verse right here, out of Bethlehem. This reveals the fact that the New Testament authors quoted this, that the Jewish leadership understood that this was referring to the coming Messiah, the future Messiah. It reveals that God's plans are not connected with the power and might demonstrated, demonstrated by the very powerful Assyrian army. Because he says, you are small. Though you are small among the clans. Same thing he said to Egypt when he, uh, Israel when he led them out of Egypt. I didn't choose you because you were the largest nation. I chose you because you were the smallest. Because if you were the largest nation, it'd be easier for you to say, look what we did. But he didn't do that. That's his way. He always chooses the underdog, the small nation. So it's not based on the power of the militaries. It's based on God. Now, when we get to verse 3, this reveals that Israel's humiliation is simply remedial and temporary. Beginning in verse 4, we see that things will be reversed when the Messiah comes. Listen to this language. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And there the word Lord is all caps, all capitalized. There's one true living God that we believe in. So he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. So when this future king comes he's going to stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Um, Things will be reversed when the Messiah comes. This is why he can begin to encourage the remnant to stand faithful. This is that little sliver of hope in the middle of a destructive uh, culture. Just relax. When the Messiah comes, things will change. Um, Didn't change in their lifetime. Ultimately, they were deported. They had to wait. As the author of Hebrews said, in the great chapter 11 of faith, these people died without seeing the fulfillment of the promise, but knowing that it would come. Micah reveals that the remnant will be protected by God. Look in verse 7. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, in other words, going to be deported, like a dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on the rain. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, and like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it grows. No one can rescue Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. So they're going to be exiled. That's what they just learned by this. They're going to be scattered among the nations, but they will ultimately triumph when the Messiah comes. Micah then reveals why God is doing all this in verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you, demolish your chariots, I will destroy the cities of your land, tear down your strongholds, destroy your witchcraft, you will no longer cast spells, I will destroy your idols, your sacred stones from among you, you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands, I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. So we capture a glimpse of what's happening underneath the surface with the people. It's not what the king is doing. It's what are the people doing. So the first thing he said, he's going to destroy them. 
He will destroy them because of their witchcraft. He'll destroy them because of their idolatry. Their idolatrous worship. That's what the Asherah poles are all about. He will end their rebellion. So what we learn from this is that their root sin was one that involved idolatry and rebellion against the one true God. If you ask the average person at this time if that was true, they'd say, no, of course not. We worship every, every week in the temple. We offer our animals. No. We're good people. Our God will deliver us. But underneath it, we have the truth. They're idolatrous. They've rebelled against God. They're not taking care of the poor. And Micah's pounding that message over and over and over again. This is what led to their violence and their dishonesty, to their abusing of the poor and the disenfranchised. These are all signs of a deeper rebellion inside the heart that the kings were not able to overcome. They couldn't turn it around. Micah then presents God's case against Israel. Israel, you have the courtroom imagery in Micah 6. Chapter 6, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. Then redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, and also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey uh, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Think about that. These are the verses that you just read a minute ago. This is what the people of Israel were saying. We'll just bring him burnt offerings. All we got to do is confess our sin. That's it. Sin's not that important. We'll just bring burnt offerings. That'll please the Lord. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Will that really please the Lord? That's what Micah's asking the people. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All the things they were not doing. They were arrogant. They weren't taking care of their people. That's justice. They were arrogant. That's not humbly. They were abusing the poor. That's not merciful. So the final verse, they weren't doing any of these things. Micah reveals the true heart of their dishonesty and their wickedness was hypocrisy. You see, they, were, uh, they thought they were obedient. They were certainly offering all the offerings. They thought their worship was pleasing to God and that he had found acceptance. They believed that he would protect them since they housed his temple. But in the final analysis, they weren't doing what, at the very core, was what God wanted. Micah concludes with laying out in clear terms what God expects. Faithfulness and integrity. That's what he expects. He expects us to act justly. We're to demonstrate justice. We should be very concerned about the most hurting person in our church. 
We are to love mercy. We are to do whatever it takes to take care of our people that are hurting. We are to live humbly. Let's remember God is in control. He is. We should live humbly. Pray for the president. That's what Paul and Peter both tell us. Pray for our president. Don't criticize our president. Be humble. Let the Lord have his way. This is what happened when Christ was crucified and resurrected. Resurrected. One of the scholars I like to read, Tom Wright, he refers to this. This is the day that the rebellion began when Jesus came. What Micah's pre- predicting here and prophesying, when the Messiah comes, the rebellion began. God began taking back what was his, all of this creation. The New Testament authors saw in Micah and Isaiah this very promise. A Messiah, he's called, a ruler, a shepherd. says, we will live securely. Don't we now? Where's your security based? In what's happening around you in the country? Don't we live securely now? I mean, Paul talks about all these things that we go through, these afflictions. He calls them momentary light afflictions. And he gives a long list of everything he's been through, including being beaten almost to death, one beat short, one one flogging short of death, shipwreck, all of that. When you read the history of the Bible, it's astounding. Ruth, the book of Ruth, written in the time of the judges. Very unsafe time for women. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what does Boaz say? Stay in my field because my workers will protect you, you young, beautiful woman. You'll be abused anywhere else you go. When you read through this, Paul traveling around the Roman Empire, we talk about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but the truth was, as he himself says, he goes through beatings, thievery, people stealing from him. This was very unsafe. Don't we live in a secure place as Christians, even if it doesn't feel secure? The real question we're going to keep asking is, do you really believe in the sovereignty of the Lord? That's the real question. I just came from a country where they have secret police sitting in the pastor's conference. The government's monitoring their bank accounts. They don't know from day to day if they're going to be arrested. I don't have any of that. In fact, when I got back from, when I left that and I got to London on the way back, I walked through the lounge and jumped in the hot shower. I told some of you this. I jumped in the hot shower because all I had had was a sponge bath with lukewarm water all week. And um, so I'm standing in the hot shower, steaming up the glass. And I just said, okay, Lord, I confess to you, I'm a spoiled American. (laughs) But it's your fault because you raised me there. Thank you for raising me as a spoiled American. (laughs) Don't we have security now? Doesn't our theology say that? What is, the, what is the worst that they could do? Kill us? Death is a very much a part of our family. I lost my first wife, as many of you know. I know, I know that I could wake up one day and Nancy will not be there. I know that. That happened to me. So our family has been a joke over the years. Whenever I leave, I tell the kids, uh, God willing, I'll be back in five days, six days, whatever. But if not, don't you worry one bit. 
we'll catch up. And it'll be great. Don't we already live in a secure place? So these language, this language down here, don't make it too political. It has already happened. His greatness will reach the ends of the earth. Isn't that is what's happening now with the church? More than ever before in the history of the world, isn't the church taking the gospel to places unknown before? I asked you last week, how do you respond when you feel threatened? Do you become angry, afraid? Do you hide, pretend there's no issues? Do you return to your faith and live out what you believe to be true? You see, what's not changed in the world is culture and politics, is it? Some of this feels pretty much at home here, doesn't it, with what we're going through? That's not what changes. What changes was the church. That's what changed in world history. Not politics. Don't be fooled. It's an illusion. If you happen to have the president that you like. Don't be fooled. We still struggle with sin and corruption and greed and evil, don't we? And abuse, don't we still struggle with that? Now we're hoping that our governors and our leaders can fix that. But the real central message of Micah is don't look to the government to get that fixed. Where do we look? To the Lord. 2,000 years ago, at the cross, the rebellion began. God began the process of taking back his creation. We are part of that rebellion as we bring the kingdom to the broken world around us. You've heard me say we have the responsibility as much as we as possible is taking this kingdom out into the world in which we live. The New Testament is filled with language of the kingdom is not eating and drinking. It's peace. It's holiness. It's us. It's us living our lives the way we are supposed to live. One of the things we learned from looking at Micah is that external show is not pleasing to the Lord. And I think this relates to us. Not that I think we're guilty of it. I don't. This is a reminder. This is a reminder. Our finest worship practices are of no value if we fail to live out our faith on a daily basis. If we fail to act with justice, mercy, and humility. It could be the best looking worship service in the world. That's what they did. God is not pleased with that. When we, when we decide to go against the teachings of Scripture, we shout very, very loudly that we don't believe our own theology. Grumbling and complaining. The world knows all about that. They're masters at it. So what does Paul say? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. When we grumble and complain, we speak in a voice that says, we don't really believe our own theology. How about being unfaithful in our marriages? Our divorce rate is the same as the culture in the world. We don't really believe our own theology. Do we? It's interesting. One of the things I'm faced with, just being transparent with you, is somebody who wants to divorce their spouse. And occasionally they'll pull the verse up. Well, I'm justified because my spouse is unfaithful. 
right. Here I am. Here's my spouse. And my spouse is unfaithful. So I'm justified in divorcing them. Guess who's the hard heart? That's what Jesus said. Moses only permitted it because you had a hard heart. That's astonishing to me that he would say that. We need to take seriously living out our faith. Criticizing our leaders when we believe, we say we believe God is in charge, is on the throne. But yeah, we don't mind criticizing our leaders. Not caring about the poor, the disenfranchised. We say they're important. Those are just examples and there's many more. The real question that you have to wrestle with, and this is what Micah teaches us, do you really believe that God is sovereign? Do you really believe it? I don't think it's by accident I lost my first wife. That was the deepest theological question I had to deal with at that stage of my life. Did I really believe God was sovereign? How is it I could pray for years, days, months, eventually hours? I could pray for two solid days, every hour around the clock. And he took her away. And the question I had to deal with, do I really believe God is sovereign when he just took away the most important person to me in the world? The answer was yes. That's what I found out. I did. You see, testing of your faith is not for God's benefit. It's for yours. Do you really believe God is sovereign in all that he does? What about in your family, your marriage? How about your finances, your job? How about in his leadership of our nation? No authority exists except that which has been established by God. Romans 13. Do you really believe that? How do we as a church become peacemakers in our county? Had some great conversations all week from last Sunday. Thank you, by the way, for the coffees and the emails. You know, I'm all over the county talking to people. And somebody comes up and whether they're on my side or not, they never know what side I'm on because I never tell them. Uh, and they're pretty vitriolic. They're emotional about what's happening in our country. I have some choices. I can change the conversation to move away from politics because we should never talk about it. <laughs> I can try to convince them why they're wrong. Or I can care more about them as a person. And I could say, and this is what I typically do, so why are you so angry over what's happening? Or why are you so excited? So why are you so angry? Well, because, you know, da 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 Right? I get it. But why is that making you angry? Well, because I don't like what's happening. What is it that you don't like what's happening? Tell me. Give me some examples. Well, I'm concerned about the immigrants. Okay? I'm, I'm concerned about them too. What is, it, what is it that you're talking about? I just start going down into layers until I find a place where they say, I just want to care about people that are worse off than me. Oh, you know what? Now we have agreement. I don't know how to get there. I'm not that wise. And maybe what we're doing is not the right thing. I have no idea. I'm nervous. I'll be honest with you. I work treading on territory I've never seen before. feels like. But when I'm talking to people, it's not about politics. It's about them. That's bringing the kingdom into their life. When I start getting down and saying, why are you really afraid? What is it that's hurting you? 
Give me the specific example. When we talk in generalities and political speech, we never get there. We just fight. I believe that it's important to remember that he is using us to bring his kingdom to a world that is lost. They're frightened, they're angry, they're scared, they're nervous, some are excited, jump up and down with glee. He's using us. To God be the glory in the church. Ephesians 6, that great benediction. He reveals himself through us. So my caution is to watch out for societal traps. They cause us to look inward and lose our focus and our mission as a church. Let me leave you with this, Revelation 1, 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Are those good words? The moment I say that you're a priest, Peter said it, Paul said it, John said it, your first question should be on behalf of whom? Because a priest means that you are responsible. Who are you a priest on behalf of? Look around you. Who are your friends and neighbors? You are a priest on behalf of them. That means you mediate. A priest does three things. They bring the people to God, they bring God to the people, and they bless them. That's what a priest does. Those are the three things identified in the Old Testament. We are a kingdom and a priest. We are priests. Don't be frightened. Don't get caught by society. Don't let them trap you and lead you astray. It's an illusion. It's fake. Remember our faith. Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for sending Micah to write down these wonderful words. And the other prophets. We've only looked at Micah and even then just briefly. But we are grateful that we are important to you. We are grateful that, um, that you would choose to use us As Isaiah says, we're blind and deaf and you use us anyway. Um, Because it's not about what we do for you, it's what you do in us. That speaks most loudly. And we stand here by your grace. We stand here forgiven because of the work of your son. Help us, Lord, to to cut through all of the chatter and the, the, the things that are being said right now around our country. To cut through all that and to love our people and to love them well. To help bring peace where there's fear to help bring a sense of genuine love, Lord, where there's hostility and hatred. We pray these things in your son's name because we believe in him. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and take